You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So if you ask people what they think life would be like in heaven, many would say, well, first of all, we'd all get our wings, duh, right? We'd all get our wings, and then we'd play the harp on our individual clouds. Um, like heaven is one big harp orchestra, and we all sit on our fluffy clouds playing all the live long day in our togas, by the way. Right? We're, all, we're all wearing togas, um, so that's nice. And so that's what, that's what some people think. Right? And when you ask what people think God does all day, they say he's usually kind of depicted as someone who's also sitting on his cloud. Right? Everyone's got a cloud, and he's got, he's got a bigger one because he's God. Right? He's, got, he's sitting on a cloud, and he's looking down on earth, and he's kind of seeing what's going on. He's like, oh, yeah, I made you, and oh, yeah, that's interesting. And, right? He's kind of look, looking down on earth and seeing what's going on. And, of course, we have the Apostle Peter, right, St. Peter, uh, after his lifelong dedication to the Lord that has led him to martyrdom, has somehow relegated him as the official Pearly Gates doorman, Right? So there he is. We know that Apostle Peter somehow is always the doorman saying, let's see if you got in or not, right? That's his job. And so we have the people who are sitting on clouds playing harp, and we have God sitting on his cloud looking down. And that's what we think is kind of going on in heaven right now. So what does God do in heaven? Does he, does he just sit there? In our text today, Jesus gives us at least the beginning of an answer, and Jesus' answer to that question of what God does really got him into a lot of trouble. Got him into a lot of trouble with the religious leaders of his day. In fact, by verse 18, they're all ready to kill him. Okay? By verse 18, they're all ready to kill him. So what does God do? Let's find out. I got a couple points I want to make today. My first point is this. The first point is that Jesus shows mercy to the helpless. Can I hear an amen to that? He shows mercy to the helpless. So you know that saying, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that before, right? It's found in the book of Hezekiah, chapter nowhere. Some of you guys are like, ah, oh, yes, the book of Hezekiah is my favorite book in the Bible. <laughs> right? Well, <clears throat> so that saying, God helps those who help themselves, it's not found in the Old Testament, nor is it found in the New Testament. It's not a verse, right? Our passage today tells us the exact opposite, actually, that God, he helps the helpless. God helps the helpless, not just those who help themselves, but those who can't help themselves. Now, there's a lot of ways in which people might be considered helpless. And this man in our passage today, he kind of fits the bill for every kind of aspect of helplessness. First, this guy was lame, right? Like he was a cripple. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Like even if he, was, even if he wasn't born a cripple, being an invalid for 38 years, 38 years of inactivity would make it pretty much impossible for him to be able to walk or function physically. This guy was completely physically helpless. But not only was he crippled, not only was he lame, he was also alone. It says in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. In other words, I have no one to help me. I'm all alone. But here's the thing. Before we all start saying, Aw, poor guy. 
Before you feel too sorry for this guy, you need to think about why he was alone. Because the years and years of helplessness had made him bitter. It made him bitter. Now, we don't see that at first glance here, but as you keep reading, it becomes clear, okay? When he was healed, there was no sign of gratitude. And when the Jewish leaders rebuked him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, the old man blames Jesus for healing him, right? Not only that, as soon as the healed man finds out that it was Jesus who healed, that it was Jesus who healed him, he runs back to the hostile leaders who hated Jesus already and then says, I'll turn him in. This is the guy. This man wasn't just physically helpless. He was twisted inside too. Something was messed up. So there he was, this crippled, hopeless, friendless, bitter man, but his helplessness actually went even further because he was also bound by cruel superstitions. Do you guys remember back in the day when we used to watch TV? Do you guys remember, uh, I'm talking to more of the uh, people my generation, do you guys remember the commercial with Miss Cleo? Yeah? Yeah. The, um, anyway, so she would, she would say, I'm not going to do the accent, okay? But... She would, she would, in her infomercial, commercial, say, you know, call me, and I'll predict your future, and so on and so forth, and I'll, uh, uh, I'm a psychic, and I can do all, she didn't say what I just said, right? But she's pretty much said that, I can tell your future, and all this stuff. Now, there's, around our house, around my house, there, there are palm readers, there are psychic readers, fortune tellers all around, all around us, and, and, uh, and they pray. They pray on the desperate. They pray on the ignorant. Well, here in this passage, we have a first century version of that, okay? And I want to explain. Now, the text doesn't tell us why the sick people congregated here by the Pool of Bethesda. But some scribe along the way penciled in the reason right after verse 3. It's in a footnote, and this is what it says. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain times or certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay? This is the superstition that was marked. This is why people congregated around the pool of Bethesda. Now, we have places like that today, too. There are people who want to get baptized in the Jordan River. Why? Because that's where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Not only that, that's where the Israelites crossed into the promised land. I mean, honestly, that'd be pretty cool getting baptized in Jordan River, right? But some of these people want to get baptized there because they think it would be spiritually more significant. That their baptism in the Jordan River would mean that they have received a greater blessing than if they were to get baptized in a pool or in a tub or, you know, here in the Potomac or something like that. That their baptism would have greater significance. Some people also believe that by touching and kissing the bronze feet of the 12 apostles in the Vatican, which I was actually able to witness, would lead to a greater blessing and healing. So some people, they travel all the way across the world to get to the Vatican, to get to Rome for this. They spend what little cash they have to make a trek to get this blessing so that they can all slobber on this one toe, right? I'll tell you why superstitions like the examples I've given and like the text today tells us, what, I'll tell you why it's so pathetic and why it's also so harmful, okay? Just think about the implications of what this man, this crippled man believed. This lame, crippled, helpless, hopeless, 
a lone, lonely man, he believed that somehow God set a foot race up for the lame. Okay? Not just kind of some, hey, do your best type of race. Uh Uh-uh, an actual race. The first to get there wins the crown. The first to get there gets healed. Other people, they beat you to it. You know what? Too bad. If, if you can't afford to get there, you know what? Too bad. If you're even too sick to be transported there, then you know what? Too bad. Better luck next time. And guess you'll be missing out on the greatest miracle of blessing and healings that only apparently the rich and the relatively healthy and mobile can enjoy. And so this makes God into some twisted and sadistic being with a sick sense of humor. You guys get what I'm saying? But folks, praise be to our God, that's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. God, he doesn't help those who can help themselves. Now, God, he can certainly help and certainly heal people and has healed people in so many different ways. But it would be an error for any one of us to say, this is how God heals. Does that make sense? God has healed people through crazy ways, through prayer, through the anointing of oil. He has healed people from placing hands on, on people. He has healed people, yes, by going to Jordan River too. There's been so many crazy uh, phenomenons and miracles that have happened, but for us to say this, the pool of Bethesda, is the only way that God can heal, that is wrong. Folks, that's not our God. If healing and deliverance is really a, ma- a, a matter of our own efforts, then it would only be available for those who have the most friends. It would only be available to those who had the most money or those who the, had the most time who are able to get to the healing waters first. And then it just ends up becoming who will be the first to win the healing game. And forget about all the millions and billions of people out there who don't have access to that healing water. This man was helpless He was crippled, he was alone, he was bitter, and he was tied down by a cruel superstition. And yet, Jesus had mercy on him. Let me tell you a little about Jesus. Everyone say, praise Jesus. Here we have a picture of pure grace. A picture of pure grace. You see, this crippled guy, he was weak, he was alone, he was bitter, and he was confused, but Jesus still rescued him. How? Jesus shows mercy in that Jesus himself, he took the initiative. He took the initiative. Now, this crippled man, he didn't ask to be healed, right? This crippled man, he didn't even know who Jesus was. This guy, he didn't show any type of faith that would convince Jesus that he was worthy of being healed. He didn't say, if only I could touch the edge of your cloak, then I'll be saved. Or if or he didn't say, Jesus, if you just say a word, then I'll be healed. This crippled man, he didn't say, if only I could just meet you in person, then I'll be rescued and healed. No, none of that. This guy was in the middle of a whole crowd of helpless hurting people. It was this man whom Jesus chose to heal. You guys, you guys get that? This unsuspecting, undeserving, sinful, this helpless old grouch who didn't care a lick about anyone else, who didn't even take the time, by the way, to thank Jesus for the healing. Jesus passed by so many others who were probably nicer folks, people who probably did a lot of good work in their life before they got sick, people who were kind, people who were equally in pain, but probably would have been filled with gratitude. If Jesus healed them, they probably would have been like, Jesus, thank you, I want to tell everyone about you. And yet, Jesus bypasses all those people and goes specifically to this one individual, this man, 
and Jesus chooses to heal him. Folks, this is the salvation which Jesus brings. A salvation that does not center on you and what you've done and what you could do. It all centers on God. Everything centers on God. It is all about His grace. It is all about His mercy. Can I hear an amen to that? That's why we praise Jesus because we're like, God, there was nothing I could have done to deserve your goodness. And yet it was Jesus who bypassed everything, the brokenness, and he honed down on you and he says, you, I choose you. God, he chose not the righteous but the unrighteous. He chose the sinners, the sick. He loved the unlovable. God sent his son to live in righteousness, then die on the cross to pay for the sins of his enemies, whom, by the way, God loved. Now God sends his spirit to call us to himself, changing our hearts, giving us a new life, enabling us all to trust in him. It is by the grace of God we are saved. Can I hear hallelujah to that? It is by the grace of God we are saved. This afternoon, we stand in awe of his grace and mercy who delivers helpless sinners like us. So maybe helpless describes you today. Maybe you are a believer, but you're still bound by weakness and bound by loneliness and bound by bitterness and bound by invisible chains of ignorance. God, he calls you today to, you know what, just like he called that man, get up, walk, and come to me. Get up, walk, and come to me. Let me tell you, oftentimes the path of healing is when we get up and when we walk in obedience to fight the fight, to get connected with others. We say, oh, people aren't reaching out to me. You know what? Forget that. You reach out to them. They're not being a community to me. Oh, you be a community to them. The church isn't being a church to me. You be a church to them then, right? To love others even when they're, even when it's not reciprocated. To trust in Jesus alone rather than some superstition, rather than simply staying on our mat and as we complain about how unfair life is, God says, you know what? Come, get up and come to me. This is now about helping yourselves to get better. It's about knowing that Jesus is the first to restore our brokenness. Yeah? That Jesus is the first to heal our wounds. That Jesus is the first to forgive our guiltiness. That Jesus is the first to raise us up from our fall. That Jesus is the first. He is the first one who will be able to comfort us in our loneliness and sweeten our bitterness. This healing, this redemption is why Jesus came to restore the broken. It was for this he died. It was for this he rose from the dead. And it was for this that he sent his spirit into the world to make people new. What are we called to do today? God says, cry out to me. Cry out to me for mercy. Why? Because I help the helpless. Don't think you can fight through this alone. You can't. Don't think you can, you can muster the strength by yourself. You cannot. Cry out to me. I help the helpless. And there's a second truth here today. It's a bit more subtle, but it's important not to miss. God, he will not rest until his people are delivered. God will not rest until his people are delivered. So back to our opening question. What does God do? 
This may seem like a complicated question with a complicated answer, but to these Jewish leaders whom Jesus just encountered, this is actually an easy question with an easy answer in particular because of that very day. You see, it was Sabbath. And the Bible clearly says that on the Sabbath day, God rested, right? He rested. So here we have Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day, and then Jesus tells the man to come up, get up, pick up his mat, and walk, and the Jewish leaders were incensed. They were mad. How dare this man violate the law, because no matter how well-intentioned Jesus' actions might have been, no matter how happy the results of really the healing might be, the end does not justify the means. Nothing can excuse this flagrant violation of God's law. So were these leaders right to condemn Jesus? Jesus? I mean, honestly, Jesus, he did work on Sabbath. That's a no-no. Jesus did command the lame man to pick up his mat and walk and work on Sabbath. So logically, makes sense. Jesus worked. But Jesus disagrees with them. And so he answered them. But here's the thing. Jesus, he didn't argue that the ends justified the means. Instead, Jesus corrected them, okay? Jesus corrected their false notion about what God is doing in the first place. And in fact, Jesus was saying, look, God, he is not just sitting on his cloud, right, resting. God, instead, is in heaven, and he will not rest until his people are delivered. He will not rest until his people are delivered. Let me explain. You see, in the Old Testament, Sabbath had two meanings. In other words, there were two rationales for observing it, okay? The first one is this. Sabbath was a gift of creation. Can everyone say gift of creation? Genesis tells us that God created the world in how many days? Somebody goes, oh, how many days? Six days, right? Six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so on the seventh day was set apart as a special day. Later on in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, God, he commanded his people to keep the Sabbath based on that rationale that I just mentioned, right? In other words, God's creation rest. So that was what the Jewish leaders were committed to doing. They had carefully classified every aspect of work into 39 categories, right? These sound like fun people, don't they? One of which was this. You were forbidden on Sabbath to carry a burden, okay? To carry a load, to carry a burden. This was a law that Jesus clearly violated when he told the man to walk and take up his mat. In fact, one commentary says that Jewish rabbis are so careful, they carefully, so carefully defined the law that it was even sinful for man to carry a needle in his robe on the Sabbath because it meant that he was working on it. Right? And it was even a violation if he wore artificial teeth or a wooden leg. It seems nonsensical. It's just crazy. Do you see what happened here? God created the Sabbath for his people's benefit. Okay? For his people's benefit. That there might be a cycle of work and then of rest. But what ended up happening was it ended up becoming a system of merit-based works. So it's this weird system that the religious leaders ended up implementing. Their system was this. Let's see how thoroughly we can not work. Okay? Do you see how ridiculous that is? 
Let's see how, who the best one is at not working. Right? And, but in that itself is work too. So the Sabbath ended up becoming a means by which these religious leaders try to establish their own self-righteousness. See, I am better at you at not working. I'm better at you at really observing the rest of creation. I'm better than you. Look at how well I'm keeping the Sabbath, Lord. I am so much holier and I respect you so much more than clearly that crippled man who was once crippled and now picking up his mat. I don't care if he was healed. I don't care if a miracle took place because clearly he's violating your law. But they missed the point. And that there was also another meaning to the Sabbath. And this was it. Sabbath wasn't just a gift of creation. It was also a promise of redemption. It was also a promise of redemption. You know, there are two places that you can find the Ten Commandments in the Bible. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the rationale for keeping the Sabbath is different from Exodus 20. Because there it does not say, because God created and rested on the seventh day, so should we. Instead, it says this, because you were slaves, God redeemed you. That's what Deuteronomy 5 says. This is, this is Deuteronomy 5 describing Sabbath in a different light. Because you were slaves, God redeemed you. God was specifically talking about the exodus from Egypt. And what was that exodus a foreshadowing of? It was the Old Testament picture of God's ultimate redemption of his people through the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, wasn't it? This Sabbath isn't just a time for us to come and rest in his presence at church or have a day out to go barbecue and play ball. Sabbath was a time for us to rest in God's presence, have a barbecue, sure, absolutely, hang out with church people, absolutely, but all of that is done with the reminder that God saves. You hear me? All done with the reminder that God saves and he saves not by our works, but by his grace and mercy. It's more than just fellowshipping with one another that makes the church the church. It's the fact that we come together because the body of believers are covered by the blood of Jesus. And so therefore, the person next to you, right, who is saved, is saved because of God's grace. The person next to you is saved because of God's grace. And we get to together bask in his love. We get to sing songs to praise him of his faithfulness, and we get to remind ourselves in worship of how he saves. You know, that was God's explanation in Ezekiel chapter 20 when the Lord said, I let them out of Egypt. I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know I made them holy. I made them holy. We don't make ourselves holy, folks. We don't make ourselves holy by following the rules. God made us holy. We observe the Sabbath because he, God, made us holy. So back to our story in John 5. Here the Jewish leaders were meticulously keeping the Sabbath by using it to kind of establish their own self-righteous, legalistic attitude before God, which ironically, they were doing the exact opposite of what the purpose of the Sabbath was all about because they were working hard to earn it by not doing anything when the Sabbath was really all about the promise of salvation by grace alone. But here, Jesus, what was he doing? He was showing mercy to the helpless. Jesus is actually beginning to accomplish the plan of salvation here. This is why he came into the world, guys. 
You want to know why Jesus came? This was the purpose of his ministry. This was the meaning of his death. And now it's happening. God is redeeming his people. God is bringing them into his eternal Sabbath rest. So when they questioned what Jesus was doing, what was his response? In verse 17, Jesus says, My father is always working and so am I. My father's always working, so am I. Then verse 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. To put it another way, Jesus is saying this. So you religious leaders, I know you're really mad at me. What you see me doing right now, in other words, showing mercy to deliver this helpless sinner, is exactly what our Father is doing right now. It is exactly what God is doing on this Sabbath day. I am only fulfilling God's redemptive plan of salvation of the ages. You know, this afternoon on this glorious Sunday, we get to enjoy this day off, a day to rest from a week of work. True rest can only be found as we bask in the grace of God, enjoying his love and his new mercies. But there's something else for us to think about, okay? And this is the challenge for us. God, on this day, is not taking a nap this afternoon, okay? He's not watching a ball game. He's not enjoying his leisure time, which, by the way, are all good things to refresh us for sure. No problems with that. I'm not saying you can't take a nap after service. But God has a bigger idea of what the Sabbath is for. You see, it's about the pursuit of loving him and loving those around us. It's about lifting up those who are down. It's about ministering to those around us who are broken. It's about being with those who are lonely. Did you know that you have people around you here, even though you're surrounded by people and you see them on a weekly basis, there are individuals here who are lonely? God is saying minister to them. He says befriend them. He says to love on them. You know what God's agenda is on Sabbath? It's not about just taking a nap. It's about feeding those who are hungry. And it's about giving water to those who are thirsty. And it's simply loving on the brothers and sisters that surround us as we all together collectively declare that it is God who saves us. So, I want you to go and enjoy this afternoon. It's amazing outside. Praise Lord for the end of the 100 degree whatever nonsense. Go eat good food. Watch a game. Go drink some kung fu bubble tea. I don't care. Right? All those things are good. But Sabbath, <clears throat> hear me out, is not a vacation. It's not a vacation. It's not where it's only about eating good food or watching a good game or drinking some good tea. It's about knowing that God showed mercy to the helpless and that he will not rest until his people are delivered. So what does that mean for us then? It means that the message of Jesus must always be in our hearts, must always be on our minds, and must always be at the tip of our tongue. So you see, we are only able to rest on this day and in his presence with one another because we know we are saved by him. We can rest because God saves God saved you, oh helpless one. Find your rest in him. Find your strength in him. Grow in faith to minister to those around you and let the good news of Jesus that he has come to save and to give mercy to helpless flow boldly from both your word and life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Faithful Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are a gracious God. And despite our many sins and the sins that we continue to commit, like that helpless man who cried out in bitterness, who pretty much sang that song of woe is me, woe is me, who had nothing about him that was worth saving. And yet, Jesus, you bypassed everyone else through the crowd of sinners, and you went to him. And it doesn't make sense to us why you went to him. Because there seemed to be so many better people to have saved. There seemed to have been so many more uh, righteous folks, kinder people. And yet you saved that helpless, lonely, embittered man. We thank you for that story. It is not an allegory. It is a truth. And Lord, we thank you because I see myself in that man. And I think we all do too. Because if you look into our hearts, God, you know that there's nothing good in us. Not even on our best day. Yeah, physically we might be able to pull ourselves from our bootstraps and succeed in life and make money and make friends and, and do good things, charitable things and all that stuff. Uh-uh. You see, Father, we thank you for this reminder that it is not that we are physically helpless, we are spiritually helpless. We are spiritually dead without you coming into our lives and rescuing us. We need more than a push from the back. We need more than just a modification of our behaviors or or bad habits. God, we need this dead life come to new. We need, Lord, to be born again. And Jesus, only you can do that. So folks, maybe that's where you're at too. As, as we're praying, as we're meditating, thinking about the sermon, I want to encourage you guys. You see, God, he helps those who are helpless. He, finds, he gives mercy and grace to those who are helpless. If you are helpless, cry out to him. God, I've tried everything my way. I've tried everything my way. And yet there's still a longing in my heart. There's still a void. There's still this darkness. There's still just a love for sin and the world. God, I am helpless. Save me from myself. Rescue me. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, know that Sabbath, this day, and every day, for the rest of your life is not a day where we get to just sit back and relax and let God work. God, he uses us to work. And he wants to use you to work in the lives of those around you. To minister to them, to love on them, to pour out grace, to be hospitable, to be generous. Maybe there's someone in your life right now that God is putting in your mind. And he's saying, go. Share with them the gospel of truth. Share with them just how much I love them. So let's take this time and pray, and then we'll go into our final song.